Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 1. How it all started. I guess you can say it all started with my dad, although by the time I remember much he'd moved out of direct clinical care and was working in what we now call public health. The stories he told of his time working in the bush, in what was then called Rhodesia and Nyasaland, now Zambia, Zimbabwe and Malawi, sparked my interest and ignited in me a desire to work with people in that way. He told stories of being wakened in the middle of the night to see to a lady who had been in labour for 20 hours and who needed an emergency caesarean section to deliver a baby. The following morning he would be working with children needing immunisations or treating malaria, severe gastroenteritis or taking out someone's appendix. It sounded so varied and it seemed as if he was making a real difference in the lives of people who otherwise wouldn't have had access to medical care. From very early on I knew I wanted to work in a general way and to be able to do almost everything. How differently things turned out later. My father didn't encourage me to be a doctor. In fact, I think he tried to discourage me. Certainly he didn't want me to be carried away by the romance of the idea of medicine, but rather to understand the reality of the work that would be involved and the toll that it could take on a person day in, day out. He wasn't the only person who tried to discourage me. At age 14, we had an assessment from a careers advisor. Her advice was that I was completely unsuited to a life in medicine. I think this was based on the assessment tool that was used. We were asked questions such as, would you rather be an astronaut and travel to the moon or be a social worker? At age 14, I didn't even know what a social worker was, but it sounded exciting to travel to the moon. There were other questions in a similar vein, and at the end of this she told me that I didn't really like people, and that I would be much better working in the lab. I didn't really believe her, and decided to ignore her advice. In fact, one of the joys of being a children's doctor has been the relationships I've formed with children and their families, and the area in which I work, which is child neurology, has allowed me to form very long-term relationships something which I value very much indeed. Jump forward five years from the careers advice debacle. I find myself in Edinburgh swapping the sunny blue skies of Zimbabwe for the grey skies of Scotland. What an exciting place to be. On our first day, I find myself in an ancient lecture theatre with wooden desktops with the initials of people such as David Livingstone scratched into the surface. Quite quickly, though, I found that playing snooker was often more enjoyable than dissection in the anatomy room. But the grounding in basic sciences was, I realised later on, really important. After two years of grinding through subjects such as anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, pharmacology, pathology, sociology, psychology, we were finally able to move on to the wards. The rotations through the various medical subjects were exciting, but it was when I had my first placement at the Sick Children's Hospital in Edinburgh that I got an inkling of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I realised that children were brilliant. They're very honest and upfront. They'd say what they thought and don't beat around the bush. I still remember the prof of paediatrics saying to us, if you can't imagine yourself 
age 60, crawling under a cot to have a talk with a frightened three-year-old, then don't go into paediatrics. That has stuck with me since then, and it remains as true now as it did then. By the time I reached the end of my medical school career, I was sure of only one thing. I wanted to go back to work with children in Zimbabwe. So after my house jobs, that's what I did. I did a six-month rotation at Harare Central Hospital in the capital. This was a baptism of fire. Having been so well supported as a junior doctor in Scotland, suddenly I was completely responsible for seeing 30 or 40 sick children in a day and providing inpatient care to a ward full of extremely sick infants. The cots never simply held one child, they always had three or four in them. In the midst of all of this there was true joy. Yes, the children were incredibly sick, and yes, sadly, some of them didn't make it. Yet the spirit of the children and their parents shone through, and I was humbled how the families never gave up. There's one example of this that has never left me. It was about 7pm. I was called urgently to the paediatric assessment unit. That was a rather fancy name for a single, large, rather dirty room with a massive queue of people waiting to be seen. The nurses shouted on me, and there was a little three-month-old baby who was blue and not breathing. His mum was distraught. I placed a breathing tube into his lungs and started to pump in oxygen through a bag. Almost immediately he turned pink. His eyes opened and he looked at his mum. I asked the nurse to keep squeezing the bag while I tried to find a ventilator for him. Unfortunately, at that time, there were only two ventilators capable of ventilating babies at Harare Central Hospital and both of them were in use. I came back and spoke to his mum. We tried to see if the baby could cope without the bag being squeezed, but very quickly he would stop breathing and go blue again. We realised that without a ventilator the baby would die. His mum then said that she would squeeze the bag, and for the next 12 hours she did this continuously and without a break. It was unbelievable. Her commitment to her baby and her understanding of the importance of continuing to squeeze the bag was just awe-inspiring. By the following morning, the baby had improved. We were able to stop the ventilation and were able to remove the tube from his windpipe. 24 hours later, he went home. Yes, he was on antibiotics and yes, he had a little way to go, but he ultimately recovered completely and all because of the sheer strength and determination of his mum. I've never forgotten that, and whenever I think of the difficulties that people might complain of, I remember that baby. I wonder what he's doing now. At this point, it's worth considering what a ventilator actually is. Essentially, a ventilator is a machine which delivers air or a mixture of air and additional oxygen directly into the lungs through a tube which is either passed through the larynx into the windpipe or directly into the windpipe, a procedure known as a tracheostomy. The machine contains a reservoir from which either mechanical bellows or a turbine pumps the air and oxygen mix. Usually, Expiration happens naturally due to the natural elasticity of the lungs, but occasionally the ventilator will be programmed to remove carbon dioxide from the lungs as well as pumping oxygen in. 
Often, a small amount of back pressure is maintained at the end of expiration in order to prevent the small air pockets of the lungs, which are known as alveoli, from collapsing. This is known as PEEP, or positive end expiratory pressure. Ventilators are used when a patient is unable to breathe for themselves, either because there's a problem with the lungs, as was the case with the baby we spoke about, or because there's a problem with control of breathing due to problems with nerves, muscles, or with the brain. Modern ventilators are controlled using a microprocessor, which very accurately determines the volume of air delivered, the rate with which it's delivered, and the frequency. This means that the machine can simply be set to deliver a certain amount of air and get on with it. There are alarms which will inform doctors or nurses if there's a problem, such as an obstruction, if the tube becomes disconnected, if there's any sort of mechanical failure, and so on. The ventilator does not treat the underlying problem which has caused the breathing failure, but supports the breathing while the underlying problem is treated. So, for example, if there's an infection in the lungs which has prevented a child from being able to breathe, the ventilator will provide breathing support while the infection is treated. Enough of the technical stuff now. Let's return to some stories. There are times in medicine, as in life, that you do things which on reflection aren't very sensible. I remember being called to a young boy one evening because of concerns that his breathing was deteriorating. He'd been badly burned in a house fire and had bandages over his face and upper body. When I arrived, his breathing was very noisy and he was looking quite distressed. I was concerned that his airway may have been burned in the fire as well and that he was developing swelling around his upper airway that could ultimately lead to this becoming blocked. As I assessed him, he became increasingly tired and I realised that I would need to put a breathing tube into his lungs. I looked down his airway with a laryngoscope, but to my surprise there was no obvious swelling at the upper end. Despite this, though, I couldn't get a tube into his lungs. His breathing deteriorated further. I became increasingly worried and began to panic that I wouldn't be able to help this little boy in time. It then occurred to me that perhaps I was missing the obvious. Perhaps the problem was much more simple than I'd thought. I cut the bandages that were around the lower part of his neck, and immediately his breathing improved. I realised that the bandages had become too tight because of the swelling caused by his burns, and this was what had led to his breathing problems. His mum was so grateful for what I'd done, and yet I couldn't help feeling that I'd been an idiot, and that I should have realised what the problem was straight away. Fortunately, the story ended well, and another invaluable lesson was learned. Learning on the job in Zimbabwe was incredibly rewarding, but I also realised that I needed a better understanding of what I was doing. Before going to Zimbabwe, I'd already successfully applied for a paediatric post in Glasgow, and after six months in Zimbabwe, I returned to the UK, fully intending to return to Zimbabwe as soon as my formal training was over. I took with me a sense of frustration that children were dying because of a lack of their basic needs. Malnutrition was rife, and every day children became severely ill or even died as a result of avoidable or treatable diseases such as gastroenteritis and malaria. The lack of antibiotics, limited availability of sterile fluids, the massive gaps between the rich and the poor all led to extreme frustration at times, and yet I wouldn't have missed my time there. The people are resilient 
and were incredibly grateful for all that was done. Every day I felt humbled by this spirit, and yet sorrowed by the lack of facilities. Despite all my good intentions, I never did return to Zimbabwe to work, and my life took a very different path from the one that I had expected. More of that in the next episode. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I will be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.